Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25, as we talk about the perfect summary, the perfect summary. You know, I always have a hard time coming up with an opening, some way to to lure you in. And so I had asked the question, what are the different ways that we try to justify ourselves? What are the ways that we try to excuse ourselves or make excuses for our sin? And and it's so funny is this morning I, I had one come right in is when we're shaking hands. The little boys were over here playing on the piano, and as I walk over and says, we can't do that, one of, the, one of the little boys blames the other little boy who wasn't even doing the little thing. And I have to say that I was related to the one who was doing the little thing. And so real quickly, they learn how to justify the excuse or to, or to blame it. I mean, we see that in Adam and Eve, right? As soon as they sin, God says, why have you sinned? And, and, then he, and Adam points to his wife, it's the woman you gave me. And, and Eve, though, no, it, it's the serpent that you, that you brought that was in here. And so we do that. Or we result to hair splitting. Have you ever find someone that's like that? You know someone does that? They, they know the loopholes. They, they know how to split the hairs. You know, you need to do this and, and, or you can't do that. And they, ah, we're going to split that as fine as we can and justify maybe why they failed or they sinned or whatever it might be the case. We're going to look at a, an instance of that this morning as we look at the perfect summary of Luke chapter 10. Last week, Jesus finished his debrief with the 72 missionaries by declaring his joy for the gracious will of the Father and revealing his salvation to and through the 72. And this truth is to bring us joy as well as we endeavor to labor in a harvest that is ready. We recognize that we need to have the same joy as Jesus as we reveal or or as we rejoice in God's gracious will to impart his grace to others. In today's passage, Jesus is interrupted by a lawyer who asks a very important question, a question that that anyone, that everyone should be asking. And as always, Jesus answers in a roundabout way by telling him a parable. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the first verse is here on the monitor. I encourage you again, always bring your Bibles. If you need one, let me know. I'd love to give you a Bible that you can take with you. And here we read, Luke writes, and behold, a lawyer stood up And put Jesus, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Father, what a great question. And I pray that we would be able to answer that this morning in a way that's biblical and truthful. Father, I pray that as we study this series, that as we continue in this series, Lord, that you continue to give us a confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that these things are written that we may know that we have eternal life. That we may know how to imitate uh, imitate you and be conformed to the image of Jesus. Father, we know that we will fail in this endeavor. We will fall. But Father, we thank you as we continue to read Luke that we see that God is a merciful and gracious God. Who bestows on us his wonderful grace. Lord, that we may continue to serve and love him. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you. Now Luke focuses now on a lawyer who seems to interrupt Jesus' conversation with the 22. The way Luke writes it is he's talking, he's rejoicing, and all of a sudden a lawyer interrupts their little private conversation and he has a question that's very important. Now a lawyer, when you and I think of a lawyer, we think of someone who helps us in, in, in criminal or civil cases, things of that nature. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, when you hear that word lawyer, it's someone who is an expert in the Mosaic law. So it was a religious leader, a Pharisee or a scribe in some way. And their job was to interpret the scripture and to help people understand what the scripture meant. And he asked a very important question about obtaining eternal life. And, and I asked, how would you answer that question? How can one obtain eternal life? And as you read the gospels and the book of Acts, you'll see that many have asked this question about obtaining eternal life. Nicodemus came to Jesus late at night in John, right? John chapter 3. Uh, we see the, uh, the young, rich young ruler who asked similar, the same type of question, but the, it's just worded a little bit different. And then we see the Philippine jailer in uh, Acts who says, what must I do to be saved? Are just to name a few. And as I mentioned earlier, this question of what shall I do to inherit eternal life is of utmost importance. And in your answer, in our answer, hangs the balance of your eternal state. You know, I've, I've worded it to people individually, like uh, from EE, Evangelism Explosion. If you were to stand before uh, the gates of heaven and Jesus said, why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer? That's simply what, what's going on here. Thomas Schreiner writes that eternal life refers to the resurrection life to come. A life with God that never ends. In Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 we are instructed that many of them that sleep, speaking of death, in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some will say, well, no, this this world contains all that there is. And when I die, I just return back to dust. God says, no, he will gather that dust and bring us to stand before him where he will judge all according to what they've done, according to God's word. And so there is a day of reckoning, a day of judgment and a day of reward for those that are children of God. So this question is very important. Everyone wants to live forever, right? In the words of the esteemed, loosely called country western singer Kenny Chesney, everybody wants to go to heaven. In that song, he sings, Preacher told me last Sunday morning, Son, you better start living right. That's the words that we hear. You need to quit the women and whiskey and carrying on all night. Two words you'll never hear me say typically in the pulpit. Don't you want to hear him call your name when you're standing at the pearly gates? I told the preacher, yes, I do. But I hope they don't call me today. I ain't ready. That's the state of many of us. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Have a mansion high above the clouds. That's how we define heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But nobody wants to go now. I think that's a sentiment that many of us would probably say, yeah, that's probably true, but how do you get heaven? How do you obtain life with God forever? 
Luke seems to indicate that the lawyer's question was not a very sincere one, but one that was meant to test, to try and trip up Jesus. Put him in the focus, in the spotlight, and let's see how he's answered. If Jesus answers this wrongly, if he answers this in such a way that, 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 that messes up his ministry, then, then they've got him right where they want him. You might recall that the religious leaders were not very receptive to the message and the ministry of Jesus. They were jealous of his popularity with all the people, the power he demonstrated over the natural and supernatural world, and jealous of his preaching and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. They had accused him of being in league with Satan and an adversary against the teachings of Moses. And as we continue in Luke, we'll see that this antagonistic attitude towards Jesus leads them to seek his death. In any case, Jesus turns the question around by focusing and facing the man, and he's going to give him an answer. However, he begins by asking a question of his own in verse 26. Follow along with me. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now remember, this is a lawyer. This is an expert in the law. What he's about to say is important because this is what he is teaching people. How do you read it? What's written in the law? And this was a favorite ploy of Jesus when interacting with those that were opposed to him. And I would say that this is a good way strategy for us as well today. We would probably be much more effective in our discipleship, in our witnessing, and in our counseling if we asked others what their thoughts and opinions of scripture was. Why? Because it helps us to understand their point of view, where they're coming from, and where they may be lacking in their understanding of the faith. Not that we give credence to that scriptural interpretation if it's wrong, but what we want to do is we want to understand, what are you thinking? Where are you going? The lawyer answers in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer gives a perfect summary of God's expectation for his creation. An answer that Jesus himself had offered in Matthew 22 to a different lawyer in a different circumstance. It summarizes the commands found in Deuteronomy 6, 5, which we would call the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord is one. And Leviticus 19, 18, it says, love your neighbor. Of the Ten Commandments, the first four detail what it means to love God, while the Commandments 5 through 10 detail what it means to love your neighbors. I want to take a moment, if you would, and put your, turn your eyes to the screen. I want to review those very quickly. Hopefully you can see those. I can't see them from where I am. So in there, uh, I'm going to move just for a moment over here for a second. It says the law reflects the perfect righteousness of God, and it sets the standards for holiness. The law reveals what is pleasing to God and it sets the standard for our conduct. We need to understand that, that the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions, right? They're, they're not Ten Things that principles that, hey, here's a good reason for you living. Yeah, feel free to, to take, a, uh, take a picture of that. This is a great one. And if you want this, by the way, let me know and I can also send it to you as well. But you'll see there in the first four, there on the left, you'll see that these are things that reflect God. And worship of him. Worship no other God. Make no other uh, uh, idols. Uh, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then you'll see then the rest as you move from left to right. You'll see the other ten. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. 
This is how we love God is be keeping the Sabbath holy. And I want to encourage you. And I'm not going to speak much on it today. And maybe this is something you can do your own study. Fathers, husbands, wives, we need to reclaim the Sabbath. It should be a day in which we are set aside to worship as a family God. Now that doesn't mean that you can't golf. Doesn't mean that you can't go to the driving range. Doesn't mean you can't drive your RC, RC cars or, or do some other types of things as a family. But do them in such a way in which you're together and you're worshiping God. That day of rest is so important. We were made for the day of rest. That's what the Bible says. It was made for man. So he may look towards to God and worship him. And so then as you go to the next five, then you'll see the ways in which we are to love one another, how we are to relate to each other. This is God's perfect standard. This is a great summary of those 10 is found in love the Lord your God and your neighbors yourself. You and I know them as the great commandment and the second commandment. Jesus, that's what we, we find in Matthew chapter 22. But as we go on in verse 28, let's move to verse 28. Jesus replies back to the lawyer who gave a perfect summary. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So do those 10 commandments and you'll live forever. However, what do you and I know about these 10 commandments? That if you and I fail in one, we have failed in all. This is, by the way, not a multiple choice. This is not like, hey, I get to heaven because, man, I did five out of ten. Or, hey, I'm a baseball player, so I did three out of ten. I'm batting 300. I'm an all-star with several million dollars worth of contract. No, it's not that. It's not horseshoes either. It's all. And you and I recognize very quickly that you and I have failed in these Ten Commandments probably even this morning, today. Because it's not only in our actions, the Bible says it's how you think, it's your motivation. It's when you're in your heart. Well, this reply, though, from Jesus should have placated this learned lawyer. I got the answer correct. It may not have, because he was really wanting Jesus to blow it here. But Jesus says, no, you've answered correctly. Do these things. You will live. Boy, now that's something I'd love to hear from Jesus himself. You know, if Jesus was here, I'd say, am I going to heaven? Yeah, you are. You know, that, that would be great, right? For, for many of us sometimes who, who struggle or doubt our salvation. Do him, am I truly one who's going to inherit life? Well, this guy is getting straight from Jesus. Not that he's going to heaven, but do this and you will live. His answer was correct and assured him that he was heading in the right direction. Do this and you will live. In this lawyer's answer, we find the answer to the dilemma of how you and I can obtain eternal life. However, it seems that something else is going on in this lawyer's mind. The wheels are clicking. The gears are going. Remember, this lawyer was an expert in the law of Moses. He knew it frontwards and backwards. He was aware of every jot and tittle. He was astute in finding loopholes for those in favor and and inventing interpretations that laid heavy burdens upon those that were in disfavor. I guess we could say that they had much in common with the descriptions of lawyers today. Luke tells us in verse 29, as we continue in Luke 10, But he, speaking of the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Here's now where we see something is going on in his mind. 
Because when Jesus said, you've answered correctly, do this and live, this man realized that he is not still going to have eternal life. So he begins now to justify himself of why he can't keep the Ten Commandments. That's what he's doing himself because he says, who is my neighbor? Tell me, who is my neighbor? In other words, there must have been some conviction in his heart that he wasn't as loving as he thought he might have been. For some reason, he felt like he had to justify himself. Most likely, as Pastor John MacArthur remarks, since no sinner can obey perfectly. Let me say that again. I agree with him here. We've said this. No sinner can obey perfectly the words and commands of God. The impossible demands of the law are meant to drive you and I to seek divine mercy. This man should have responded with a confession of his own guilt rather than self-justification. This desire to justify himself or or to make himself right or declare himself not guilty reveals the man's self-righteous character. And let me just ask very quickly, how does that come in your heart? When I say, do you want to inherit eternal life? And you say, do the commandments. Are you justifying yourself? How often do you self-justify your actions? The way that you relate to others. Especially when you know that you have not loved your neighbor as yourself or loved God with all your heart. Only the most deluded would ever say that they have perfectly. So like many of us, when confronted with our inadequacies, he resorts to hair splitting about the interpretation of the law by asking for a clarification of who exactly is my neighbor. Can you you clarify that for me, Jesus? Because, you know, there's some that I love and there's some that I kind of struggle with and there's some I'd rather not deal with at all. You know that. We all deal with this. Isn't this like us today? Looking for loopholes and interpretations that let us off the hook from obeying God's command. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You and I live in such a consumer driven culture, even in our churches. Just this week, the oldest denomination in the United States, the the Reformed Church of America, announced that they will be splitting due to differences of interpretation concerning LGBTQ uh, into infinity issues. Churches are struggling with political, cultural, and social conflicts due to the itching ears, meaning tell me what I want to hear. Scratch that itch. They're looking for justification and validation for their own unscriptural views. Instead of being led by the scriptures and the spirit, they are led by their evil passions and desires. One group of pastors met this past week in South Bend, Indiana to discuss their grievances with the church and the church's teaching with the Bible and those that hold the biblical truth. One article describes this group. You'll see it here on the monitor, I believe. It says that most of the leaders held some belief in Jesus and the idea that people gathering churches is still a good idea. Well, thank you very much. 
You know, Jesus has forsaken not the assembly, but at least they're saying that at least some of the things in the Bible are okay. But look at the last part. But they preferred curiosity over certainty. Inclusion over exclusion. Hold that up there just for a little bit. Look at that again. This is the itching ear syndrome in which churches are now programming, scratching programs so that they could satisfy the felt needs of those who would rather have just curiosity over. In other words, when someone says, how can I inherit eternal life? It's not to say, love your God with all your heart and soul and mind. It says, well, well, Oprah says that there's many ways to Jesus and that Jesus is the only way. Well, you know, I could go in and do the Buddha thing and the Confucius thing. And, you know, I could do this. I could do that. Or, or you know, so it, does God really say that marriage should be between a man and a woman or my what's my identity? Uh, isn't it better just to be curious rather than certain? We live in a day where people are not wanting certainty. Certainty is bigot. It's prejudice. It is, 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 is oppressive. And then the next one is look at it. They want inclusion over exclusion. And, and I understand this point. By the way, our church is we are a church that welcomes any to come in. However, the only way into the family of God is through Jesus Christ. And we make no apologies for that. So we will love our neighbors by bringing them as they are. But I will love them by sharing, them with, sharing with them the truth. We've gotten this thing in which we think love is always just loving them and never confronting them over sin. And then we wind up compromised. There's a big debate going on right now in conservative Christian circles on empathy versus sympathy, or I should say sympathy versus empathy. And when you and I think of sympathy and empathy, which one is the better? I bet the majority of you would say empathy. But there's a pullback in which it says, well, you know what? Empathy is really not in scripture. Sympathy is. Empathy is a case in which the, 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 the logical procession of empathy could lead one to compromise biblical faith. See, sympathy says, I see you in your sin, in your brokenness, and in your hurt. And I want to love you and I want to share with you the truth. Empathy tends, tends, general, I'm generalizing here. Empathy tends to say, I see you in your pain, your hurt, and you're okay. And I want to help you in that. And so we compromise. And we have a plethora of things in which the church now has accepted and okayed that has never been biblically okayed. And we want to be careful with that. Okay, that was free, by the way. That was all the editorial free. You don't have to pay for that. So like many of us, when we're confronted, we go to hair splitting. We're asking, who is our neighbor? And we live in such a consumer-driven culture as we're looking to have our ears itched. The lawyer's summary of the kingdom commandments, though, is what God expects of his creation. We are to love God and our neighbors, yet it's pretty obvious to everyone that we live in a broken world where this is not only difficult, but in reality is impossible. That's why Jesus reteaches, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, these lawyers, interpreters of the Mosaic had got it wrong and had interpreted it wrong and had applied it wrong. There's none of us that can accomplish this type of love all the time 
and in every circumstance. Amen? We need to understand that. And we need to admit that. Instead of hair splitting, instead of justifying ourselves, we need to recognize it. Now, to love God with our neighbor, to love God and our neighbor with all our heart is more than just a slogan or a mantra. It's not something you just put on your bumper sticker, right? Or just say, this is what I need to do. Our heart consists of our mind, the things that we think. When we see in the Bible, our heart, you know, it, it, it encompasses quite a bit of things. But it, it consists of our mind, the things that we think. It, it consists of our affections, the things that we love, the things that we desire, the things that motivate us. And then it can consist of our will. It, it, that's our choices. Those are things that we want to make choices. So for you and I, when it says to love God, it says to love God with our thoughts, with our affections, and with our choices or our will would be the, the more proper term there. And too many times we repeat this great and second commandment, commandment excuse me, without truly thinking about what it means to love God with my thoughts and with my affections, and with my will. Scripture calls us in Colossians, you'll see this here, if you have then been raised with Christ, if you are a child of God, he says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are earth. In other words, our thoughts and our affections and our will need to be be captured by love for God, for his glory. That's what it means. That's very difficult to do because our thoughts, our affections, and our will are, 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 are depraved. Not as depraved in which we are as bad as we could be, thank God to, thanks to God's restraining spirit, but that it's depraved in which sin is in there and has corrupted the way we think, the way that we, we desire, and the way that we choose. So in some ways, this lawyer knew that he did not measure up to the law of God, and he's looking for ways to justify himself. Now, Jesus doesn't answer him directly, but he uses a parable, as Jesus does, to teach him the answer to his second question of who is my neighbor. You recall that, the parable is an, that a parable excuse me, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. They are meant to bring the hearer to conviction, not to, not to compromise or to confirm what he's thinking and believing, but to bring them to conviction. It calls them to respond to the moving of the, of the spirit. In verse 30, Jesus replies to this question, who is my neighbor, by stating that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Landon had read the, this part earlier in our scripture reading. And again, I have to say, it's a famous, familiar, and favorite story known as the Good Samaritan. Pastor John MacArthur notes that the scripture Good Samaritan has now become a very common idiom or saying that all of us understand and know what it means to be a Good Samaritan. There is even a Good Samaritan law for, for those who might see someone who, who is like in an accident on the side of the road and you go and you help them. And maybe your harm, your help causes more harm. There's a good Samaritan law to protect you. But it's become a common idiom for lavish and sacrificial kindness. The setup is pretty simple. As Jesus relates a journey that almost every Jew would have taken at least once in his lifetime. The road spoken of here is about 17 miles long from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
and was very dangerous, especially for someone traveling alone. Jesus introduces three characters who pass along the way alone, uh, alone as well. They're traveling alone as well. But the first two ignore the man and continue on their way. The first one was a priest. A priest who was one who served in the temple at Jerusalem. They were a son of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was a Levite, but it was only the sons of Aaron who could serve in the sacrifices. So that was a, a priest, typically. Excuse me. Who was responsible for the different sacrifices required by the law. The second traveler who passed by him was a Levite who did serve in the maintenance of the temple along with assisting the priests and keeping the order during the worship. So they, were, they would work as, as servants and assistants. And typically in reading this parable, you and I would think that these two religious men would at least stop and check on the man. That, that's the expectation from those that are listening to Jesus teaches. However, they avoid the man, maybe worried about being attacked themselves, whatever way What is striking here that these two men should have been expected to check on him. Why? Because if sons of Aaron, they would have been aware of Yahweh's command found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. I believe I might have this on the monitor where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This was expected of every Jew. To live and to work and to, and to love others and to show kindness. Especially then for the priests and the Levites. The Old Testament is full of commands to help the oppressed, the poor, the injured. But for whatever reason, these two men totally ignore the commands of Jesus. And Jesus continues the story by introducing now an unexpected character. That of the Samaritan. Though they were considered distant cousins, the Samaritans and the Jews... They were very hostile to each other. They had different places of worship. They claimed different sources of biblical authority in the Old Testament. And they entertained many historical grievances and hatred towards each other. This was definitely what many of us would now call like a race war. These two hated each other, these two groups. Ethnically, they were very close the same, but they hated each other. To the Jews listening to Jesus, this would have been the the black hat that's entering into stage right. This is the villain. This is the big bad wolf that's entering the story. They would expect that that the good Samaritan is only entering the story. And when he sees the Jew that's injured, he's either going to take advantage by killing him or taking more of his stuff. This is the expectation for those that are listening to Jesus's words. But to their amazement. Jesus continues his parable by stating that instead of taking advantage of the man, ignoring his plight, or avoiding him, the Samaritan sees the man. Now this is very interesting. Go back to Exodus where you see this. You don't have to go back to Exodus. But if you were to go back to Exodus when we studied that, when the, when, when the Hebrew children cried out for deliverance, you might hear these phrases again. The good Samaritan sees the man. He, he recognizes his condition. He understood the severity of the incident and he knew exactly what to do. The good Samaritan was moved by compassion, as you see there, to a series of action that involved this. And here's to love your neighbors. If you want to know how to love your neighbors, get these three things. One, it involves personal involvement, personal responsibility, 
and personal sacrifice. So personal involvement, responsibility, and sacrifice. This is what the Good Samaritan is. As Landon read through the story, you see that he does this. The response and the action of the Good Samaritan included binding up his wounds, administering oil, which was used for healing. It's kind of like, our, uh, like, a, like a healing balm. And also wine. You could use that as an anesthetic and also as a way to help them just to drink and maybe to take the pain away. He puts him on his own animal while he continues to walk. He brought him to shelter and finds a place for him. But not only that, he took care of him. And if that was not enough, he then gave the innkeeper two days worth of wages and told him to continue, uh, continue to care and to charge anything else to his account with a promise to repay it, the debt. Now, the question I may sometimes have to ask is why in this world would this Samaritan even be on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Usually each of them would go a long way around, but for some reason the Samaritan was in, is in that area. Not germane to the story. Not even sure if it's a true story, but in it we see this parable. Remember, this was a man that the Samaritan did not know. This was a man who, if he was conscious, would have avoided the Samaritan at all cost and probably would not have returned the favor at all. That man might have even spit and shouted insults and threatened the Samaritan. However, the Samaritan shows personal involvement, personal responsibility, and a personal sacrifice. Now, as you and I continue in Luke chapter 10, verse 36, Jesus ends this parable, this tale, with, with a question. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So he tells the story and he puts the emphasis back on the man. Who is your neighbor? So this makes us to think, and you and I, in our evangelism, and our witnessing, and our counseling, we, we ought to, in our discipleship, we do ought to do this more. We need to understand this. And of course, the question is a no-brainer. Even the most hardened of hearts would have had to answer the same as the lawyer did in verse 37. When Jesus says, which of these showed himself to be a neighbor? He says, the one who showed him mercy. Underline that. Now what's interesting is this lawyer could not bring himself to say the Samaritan. <laughs> he couldn't even call him out. He just said, well, the one who showed him mercy. I almost said, in my mind, that's how he's saying it. He, he grudgingly answers with the right question or the right answer. I, I, to me, it just seemed more of like a grudging type of thing. Ah, the one who showed him mercy. We know we find now the full answer to the lawyer's question. How shall I obtain eternal life? By showing mercy. Loving God. Loving our neighbors. What must I do to eternal life? That answer is that one must love God and his neighbor. But it goes even deeper than just a simple mantra or an assent to some doctrine. Though that is the first step. As Pastor Mark MacArthur notes, this story illustrates how we all fall short of what God's law actually demands. We say we love God. We say our love, we love our neighbors, but we're looking for loopholes and ways to justify our failure to do so because we fail to show mercy. 
Jesus holds up this parable as a mirror to expose the heart of the lawyer and as well as us today. Do you love like this? Do you show kindness to others like this? I think it's important when we live in a day where we are being divided into oppressed and oppressors, when we're being divided into different ethnic groups that are being battled, where it's class wars and all sorts of things. Today, we're all either friend or enemy. And you need to choose a side. And you're good to your friends, and you're terrible, and you cancel your enemies at every cost. And even your friends can become your enemy at any moment. This is the world we live in. We must understand, though, it's our failure to feel the great commandment in our thoughts, and our actions, our affections, and our choices, and loving God and loving our neighbors. The ultimate evaluation will be based on our deeds and attitudes, not just on our words. And Jesus holds up this parable as a mirror to expose the heart of the lawyer as well as us today. And you say, but I do love. Well, let me tell you, the Bible says that if you're angry with your brother or sister, you've murdered them. Many and most of us, probably all of us are guilty of spousal murder. Thankfully, we will not, we will not be held account right into the law. Unless any of you, don't, please don't go do that. But isn't that what the Bible says? I hate that of the political, and I hate that of the sexual. Well, God says it's murder. If I insult someone and say, you fool, he says you're guilty of hellfires. The Bible calls us to a much higher standard. However, as Paul states in Romans chapter 3.20, you and I must not uh, succumb to just love God and do good works. The social gospel, do good to everyone. Because it says in Romans 3.20 that for by the works of the law, no human being will be made justified in his sight. So even doing, trying to do good works of personal sacrifice, personal responsibility, and personal involvement with those that are in need will not bring us into eternal life. He says it's since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All the law, law does is makes me more aware of my sin. You know, who does that well is Ray Comfort of uh, Living Well Ministries. When he asks, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever been angry with a brother? Have you ever looked at a woman or a man with lust? And we find, whoa, whoa, we are guilty. James writes, I believe it might be here on the screen, that you and I need to understand that salvation does not come by works, but it also says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So they two work together. We said this last week. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Dr. Thomas Schreiner notes, in his commentary, that love for neighbor reflects the fruit of repentance. The evidence that one has truly repented and believed. So if you're here today and you would say, uh, I would ask you, do you love the Lord your God with, you, with all your thoughts, with all your, with all your affections and desires and your choices and your will? And you would say, uh, yes. I would say, would you demonstrate that through loving your neighbors? I mean, look at the fruits of that. Have you truly repented 
For no one can go to heaven until we repent and turn towards Christ. The conclusion of this passage is found in the last part of verse 36. And you need to underline this. And Jesus said to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. That's our application this morning. It's very simple. I'm going to tell you what Jesus told that man. Go and do likewise. What is it go and do likewise? Show mercy. Show mercy. To who? To everyone. It doesn't matter if we're the same ethnic or not. It doesn't matter if we're of the same social economic situation. We show mercy. But what if they're of the politics that is different than mine? Then show mercy. We show mercy. Why? Because God has called us to show mercy. As believers and inheritors of the kingdom of God, we are to be merciful. As children of God, we are to imitate our Father who is the God of all mercies. Scripture tells us that I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to the end. And you say, well, when do, should I stop giving mercy? Never. Now that does not mean that we compromise or that we, we affirm them in their sin. For the mercy is sharing with them the kindness of God who has called them to repentance. We have this definition of mercy is, is we just give them everything they want. It's not mercy. He says they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalms tells us, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been up from old. We have a merciful God. Jesus himself taught, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You and I are to be merciful, for we received mercy. What I receive from the Lord, I give to you. And think about it. For you, a parent, or maybe a husband or a wife, maybe you get angry with your spouse or your children, and you just want to go ballistic on them. Aren't you glad God hasn't done that to you? For your sin? For your constant rebellion against him? Let us have kindness and mercy. That brings discipline. The Bible tells us the Bible dis- that God uh, disciplines his children. And so we must as well, but that's done with mercy. This mercy is demonstrated as we love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we love our neighbor as ourselves, that means we love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. As much as you seek out your aspirations, your dreams, as much as you try to take care of yourself, we ought to do that to others. And by the way, husbands, that means your wife is your neighbor. Wife, your husband is your neighbor. Your children are your neighbor. Your mother-in-law, your father-in-law. Well, your mother-in-law... Yeah, okay, yeah. That is your neighbor. There is no loophole or hair splitting there. And I loved my mother and I loved my mother-in-law. But we <laughs> see, I threw myself off. We need to love everyone is our neighbor. No one that, that, that does not exclude any. Where am I? He writes here, I believe, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Ben, help me out, put that on there and let me go on. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord, what? Has forgiven you. 
so you also must forgive as a been above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony go and do likewise he goes on to warn the church of galatia for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one one another watch out that you are not consumed by one another and please forgive my words here but i believe many christians sometimes we have become spiritual cannibals in which we're biting and devouring each other and typically we're biting and devouring the very ones that we say we love the most Let it not be so. So for us today, we need to model the same, listen to this, and you may want to just mark this and circle this on your note or put it on the side of your Bible in Luke chapter 10. You and I need to model this, the same remarkable generosity. That's what you're seeing there with the personal responsibility, the personal involvement, personal Remarkable generosity towards others as the Good Samaritan Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 5. I believe it's here on the screen. Look at this. This is important. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, here's a reinterpretation, a proper, correct interpretation. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what it means to love others. So that you may be sons of your father, who is in heaven, that you and I may have life eternal with him forever. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. So who in your life do you need to show remarkable generosity to today? Who is it do you need to show remarkable generosity through forgiveness, a releasing of bitterness, of confession, of offering grace, of serving and showing honor. Let us commit this morning to showing mercy to those in need. Just as God the Father showed us great mercy in reconciling us back to himself through the obedience of Christ. I'd like to come to a closing here as we read right back, go back to Luke chapter 6. We looked at this probably last year or the year before in verse 32. He says, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. We understand that. And if you do good to those who do good, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinful sinners lead to sinners to get it back the same amount. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high God. For he is kind to the ungrateful And the evil, be merciful even as your father is merciful. You see, there you and I also have the gospel. For we cannot be perfect as the father is perfect. For we will fail, and when we fail, and we will fail to love God and our neighbor. We will fail to demonstrate remarkable generosity. There are times we will not get personally involved or show personal responsibility or sacrifice for another. We know that when we do fail in that, that we have a father who is merciful and forgives those that fail to do so when we confess our sins. As John writes in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To God be the glory. Go and do likewise. There we head bowed and there we had closed as Randy makes his way up and also the worship team. In closing, his mercy is more. I pray that that song will have more meaning. The words of Christ will have more meaning when we consider the, or the, the remarkable generosity of being merciful in loving God and loving others. Randy, would you come please? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.